The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Bound. The choices we make and the food we buy can have huge impact. Agriculture, food culture and the industry behind them are huge contributors to climate issues, waste and the health of a society. One local advocate for changing the world by changing what we eat is Isabel Pash, who helps to support organic production, local farmers market economics and healthful baking. She is part of Kelmana Gardens, the Greyland Farmers Market and majority owner at Bread and Butter, bakeries and cafes that focus on traditional sourdough fermentation, organics and as many locally sourced ingredients as possible. After a wild year of COVID response and change, Isabel's business is now taking nice bread outside of the metro regions with a new pilot bakery in Whangaparoa. To talk the journey, a mission for sustainable food, the politics of bread, and what's next. Isabel Bush joins us now. Tēnā koe. Thank you for being here. Tēnā koe. Hey, so first up, you um, you came into uh, the bakery industry, the business, by quite an interesting route. Eh? Tell me about how you first found yourself in New Zealand as a scientist. Yes, so I came to New Zealand in 1999 to do a master's in um marine microbiology. I had started my undergrad in Germany studying biology and then in my master's I wanted to study marine biology. I first started at, well I did start my master's at the University of Hamburg um, but people had told me don't go to Hamburg University, it's not great for science. I didn't listen because I like the city. So I went there and started and realised it's not great for science. (laughs) (laughs) So I then um, applied for a scholarship to go overseas and my uncle, who may at some point have been inspiration for me to study biology because he was a botanist, um, professor for botany and um, he had studied in Wellington in the late 70s, early 80s. And so New Zealand was sort of somewhere in the back of my mind, a uh, place that you could go and study maybe subconsciously. And I looked um, and found a um, professor 
at Auckland Uni who um, was working on a project that I thought was quite interesting. So I emailed him and this was really like I got an email address just to email him and then he replied back on the same day and I was absolutely blown away <laughs> that uh, – not only could I email somebody at the end of the world, but this professor would just reply back. Gym professors weren't like that. Like they had like half an hour uh, a week where you could go and see them and you'd be lucky if you get an appointment in three weeks' time or so. So I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome. And then I got a scholarship as well and then I came here. Ah, that's so, so cool. yeah. what, what kind of um, place in your mind and imagination did New Zealand have? As um, we've been lucky enough to know a, a number of um, German au pairs, and they have said that they thought of New Zealand as being this wonderful, exotic, about as far away as they could imagine uh, kind of place. And it's so funny to think of New Zealand as being thought of as exotic by anyone. No, well, I, yeah, I didn't know that much because there wasn't that much internet there. And, you know, so I had. Yeah, I thought of it as a green place with lots of sheep. And I I thought maybe I'd better go and buy some cool clothes before I go to New Zealand because they're probably just all walking around in knitted jumpers. And and, um, I was so positively surprised when I got here. It was amazing. I absolutely fell in love with it straight away. Like my supervisor was great. I had a great lab buddy. They picked me up like in the first week and they're like, we're going out fishing. We're going to Great Barrier Island on a boat. And there were dolphins jumping around. And I was like, this is fantastic. I'm staying. And the fashion was great, great too. So I was like, no no need to go back. And then you you, – after – well, you did go back, hey, though. Yes, I did. So I, I, did, I did finish my master's here, um, but I fell in love with a particular Kiwi, and that particular Kiwi hadn't done his OE yet. So he was dead bent on, no, I'm going to Europe. You can come with me, or I'm staying. Or, or you can stay, but then, you know, our relationship is over. So I um, went with him, and we went together to Berlin and um, lived in Berlin for nearly 10 years. <clears throat> cool. And then what brought you back to New Zealand? Um, we lived in Berlin and um, I started or I continued a PhD, with a PhD initially, but then halfway through my PhD, I um, had an epiphany and decided I didn't want to be a scientist. Um, it was too specific, like Working as a scientist, you work on very specific problems, and and I wanted to do something broader with more impact rather than something very specific. So I went, I broke off my PhD, and I started a course in science journalism. And in Berlin, after that, I worked in communication, science communication. Um, we, I had my own small PR agency together with another woman and um, we mainly did conferences and communication for um, research institutions and pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that. And then my husband and I, well, we got married and then we had children and we thought it would be wonderful for the kids to grow up here. So we decided to come back. To the call of the dolphins. <laughs> to the call of the dolphins <laughs> and the wide open spaces and beaches and um, yeah. instead of inner city Berlin. And for kids, it just seemed the better yeah. alternative. And so we decided to come back and I thought, mm, bugger. 
science journalism or science communication in New Zealand. Yeah, we've got it's a bit niche in Germany already. So <laughs> yeah, we've got a handful of great science communicators and journalists oh. in New Zealand, haven't we? But there's probably not room for an enormous number. That's exactly what I thought. It's like if there's four or five of them, they've probably got it covered. Yeah. And English isn't my first language, so to write in a language that's not your first is difficult, and especially if you're working on something very particular, like you know, complicated topics and content, and so. I thought maybe I'd try something completely different. Maybe, and the one thing that I had missed in the two years that I lived here was bread. Yeah, tell tell me about that. What what was the state of bread for, and what's the difference in the role of bread in German culture and eating compared to uh, in the New Zealand you found, you know, when you arrived? Yeah, I'm not sure why bread has played such a big role in German culture, but you said you've had several German au pairs, mm. so you probably know that the thing they moan about is the state of bread in New Zealand. Yeah, it's, it's, for Germans, it's so important to have good bread. And in Germany, our traditional bread is sourdough, may often rye sourdough or very grainy, dark, heavy. So that's quite different from what you get here, which um, I call it fluff or white fluff. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can compress a slice of bread to... That. Yeah, you don't find great big holes inside your German sourdough, do you? It depends on the types of sourdough, I guess. <laughs> on the in the rye ones, you don't. No, yeah, but um, yeah, just bread is substantial. And in in Germany, you have bread for breakfast, yeah. and then you, traditionally we used to have a cooked lunch, and then dinner is evening bread. Yeah, Abendbrot. Abendbrot. Yeah. that's right. <laughs> and you know, a culture loves something if they put the name of it into their meals. So yeah. in Japan. Breakfast is asugohan, lunch is hirugohan, and dinner is bangohan, which is morning rice, daytime <laughs> rice, and evening rice. <laughs> and in yep. Germany, you've got That's your great. evening bread. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so it, it, it plays a huge role. And, and um, when you've grown up on quite substantial grainy sourdoughs, and then you're um, confronted with this quite sticky white sometimes a little bit brown, but still same texture and not much flavour and certainly no crust, um, you crave that. And um, also, we've got a huge variety of bread in Germany and traditionally, and at least when I was growing up, people would not buy bread at the supermarket. They, you always buy it at the bakery and um, you know there, there'd be different types of rolls and different types of bread and usually we would have like a brown sourdough usually rye during the week and then on the weekend be a treat we'd have like white you know bread rolls or brioche or you know something like that and yeah it's just it's just a huge part of the culture and I think for many immigrants they the thing they miss the most is the food that they can't get so I thought I'd start my own bakery and the other part of that story is from my study as a marine microbiologist, I was actually working on, I did my thesis on gut fermentation of fish, but this was something that my supervisor was trying to prove that fish also use fermentation by bacteria to digest plant material or algae, algal material, but 
that was very new. So all the reading I had to do to familiarise myself with the topic was on ruminants, so cows and sheep, but also on humans. And so I became quite familiar with um, the role of bacteria in that they play in digestion. And from that, I learned a lot about, you know, how how important they are, how important they are in breaking things down. And um, the other side is my sister is an organic farmer in Germany. So through her, I also learned a lot about the impacts of chemicals in farming. And then from there, it was quite easy to make the connection also of chemicals in food and what they do to our um, digestion and then to our wider health. So I felt that I could combine my passion for good food and bread and my culture um, with my knowledge that I had gained from my scientific studies and my uh, wish to communicate that. And that's always been something why I did science. I wanted to understand how the world works because I've always felt a great need to improve possibly or you know contribute to improving the world yeah and if you look at the state of the food industry the industrial food industry you know like you say with the organic farming practices i don't think it's going to be very long in the future that we look back and go oh we put this poison on on our food to kill living organisms and then we ate it as living organisms <laughs> how's that going to work out for you it's cra- it's crazy <laughs> yeah. I, I i think too that in in sometime in the future hopefully sooner rather than later we will look at this like we look at smoking yeah. nowadays oh, you know we're it, like they called it insecticide but it's also humanicide <laughs> <laughs> yeah something like that yeah and and one thing that is is so when you do microbiology what i learned was that a lot of the chemicals that are supposedly safe because they supposedly only affect insects or Hmm. fungi or, you know, bacteria um, and therefore have been, you know, safe for humans. It's like, well, hang on. We have bacteria and fungi and that in our intestine. They're they're crucial for our own health. So if we put stuff in our food that kills them, it kills the ones in us too. And then you get people that have all these digestive disorders that can't digest food, whether that's celiac disease or irritable bowel or, you know, there's a whole raft of them, autoimmune diseases. The gut is hugely important for teaching our immune system about good and bad um, bacteria or you know parasites and the immune system sends cells into the gut they talk to the bacteria so to speak and get told what's good and what's bad and then they come back into our, our bloodstream and inform our immune system about that so if you have been eating food that has a lot of chemicals in it it changes the bacteria you have. The bacteria don't really care, they're single cell organisms but you will get different ones so not the ones that we've evolved with, co-evolved with over, you know, hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And um, you, you th- they will still break down whatever comes through. So if you're eating a lot of chemicals, they will break those chemicals down. But what do they break them down to? Nobody knows. Nobody's and, ever tested that. And it's also like you're, 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 you're gardening with your own gut. You're the gardener and <laughs> what you feed it, you get more of and what you don't feed it dies off. So exactly. if you don't feed your good bacteria in your gut, good stuff, 
and you only have bad stuff, then you end up with more of the bacteria associated. I mean, it's a pretty banana thing. We're, we're so early in the journey of really starting to understand the importance of, of the gut and food. And it was interesting when you mentioned celiac and, you know, the, the, the whole kind of um, bread as, as a kind of bad guy in so many people's diets. Tell me about your relationship with, um, with, with bread. And, uh, yeah, like, do you have to be... Uh, defending it for people or what um how, how does that play well we often or i often find myself having to explain to people the difference because what is sold in supermarkets that is sold as bread i i, I think it shouldn't be allowed to be called bread because bread is <laughs> bread is really one of the oldest foods that humans have made mm. grain agriculture is what propelled us out of the hunter-gatherer age into the agricultural age and that then led on to complex civilizations and you know trade and all of that came from there Um, and so we've been eating grains for a long long time and we've probably been eating grains before we've been purposefully growing them as well because why would we start growing them if we didn't know that they were good for us Um, but Grains have to be treated in a certain way. They have to be fermented because they contain a lot of um, compounds that are difficult for us to break down. So they've always been fermented in, in some way, at, at least the whole, the wheats and cereal grains. Um, and in the fermentation process, some magic happens. Bacteria break down the things that are difficult for us to digest and turn them into um, metabolic products that are good for us, that help us. And because we've been eating them for so long, we rely on those. But what happens or what happened in the last 60, 70 years, maybe going back as far as 100 years in, in bread production is really very exemplary of what happened in the whole food system. So we've gone from local growing, processing on a small scale using aged old methods that have over time, even if we didn't know why we knew they worked, um, have been turned into um, food that comes from far away, is mass produced, is turned into through through, um, highly extractive methods and use of chemicals uh, turned into really cheap food that provides calories but no nutrition. Mm. And I think that sort of, you know, that sort of very crudely summarizes a large part of our food system. That's how how a lot of people get calories but they don't get nutrition and that's why we have so many issues with health and obesity and, you know, all these digestive disorders, allergies and all of that. It comes from there and... um, Bread is just a symbolic um, type of food where it really it becomes very obvious how it has turned so quickly. And because it's such a simple food as well, bread is just fermented flour, a little bit of salt and water. That's all bread needs to be. They don't need to be 50 ingredients in a loaf of bread. You can re- literally make a loaf of bread if you're counting water as an ingredient out of three ingredients. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, and it is kind of terrifyingly, miraculously cheap. That kind of supermarket bread, you know, ninety nine cents for a loaf of the the white stuff. And as you say, a lot of calories. So you know, it's delivering a lot of energy to people. 
but very little food. But then the, the good stuff at six or seven, sometimes up to eleven, twelve dollars a loaf. That's you know that's that's maybe ten times more for the same calories. It's it's hard for people to afford. Well, most cultures or all cultures rely on some form of grain as the staple for calories, whether that's in East Asia, it's rice and in um, most of, you know, the Middle East, um, Europe, Africa, it's some form of cereal grains. Um, In the modern, uh, in in the Americas, it was um, corn. So all human cultures I think apart from maybe the Inuit um, in, in the far north, have relied on some form of grain as their staple for calories because grains can be stored, um, they can be mass-produced, um, and they deliver the calories. And then you can <clears throat> buy you know some vegetables and some meat and that um, bring in the other food groups as well, but you don't need as much, mainly you need that. So, And then in the Industrial Revolution, um, feeding the masses what's as cheaply as possible was really crucial to having cheap workers as well. So it was actually in England um, where they had, I think in the early 19th century, they had some bad harvests, bad weather, basically all the harvests failed. But the British Empire was like, not to worry, we can import grains from somewhere else. So they started importing grains, um, and those grains had an advantage over British grains. They were harder, meaning they had more protein in it. So more protein means more elasticity, means you can put more air into the bread. Well, we have a saying in the baking world, you know, the more air and water you can get into a loaf of bread, the better, because air and water is free while the flour costs money. <laughs> um, so pumping up the loaves bigger made it seem like the people are getting more for their money or you could put less in and make the same size loaf of bread. Um, and it became really important because now the farmers that whose harvests had failed and, and they lost their land, they moved into the cities in, in the middle of the 19th century and started becoming factory workers. They couldn't feed themselves anymore because they didn't have any land to feed themselves. So it was important for them, for the factory owners, to give them cheap bread. And for centuries, bread was always brown. It was always wholemeal. And only rich people could afford to sift out the the husk part and have whiter flour, and you know, so white bread was also perceived as something to aspire to. You know, people obviously hadn't got a clue back then yet about the nutritional side, so it was just white bread was fancier. So for factory owners to provide whiter, fluffy bread at a really cheap price was a way to keep the masses quiet, and. So that became intricately involved with the whole industrial process and the industrialization. And then in the mid-20th century, after the Second World War, where in the Second World War, um, I think especially in America and Britain, they started experimenting with using certain chemicals as preservatives in food so they could send the food to the troops that were far away, and it was necessary to do that. Um they realized, okay, well, we can make food last longer and um, we can make it cheap. And after the war, everybody was broke. Um, and so um, they, yeah, the, the task was 
to keep food as cheap as possible. And again, in Britain, they because the British Empire was falling apart, the pound was plummeting, they couldn't import grains anymore, so they had to go back to using the British grains, which were softer, um, meaning they, they can't tolerate so much air. So they um, tasked um, a commission called the Chorleywood Commission with the um, t- task of finding a recipe how you can make soft, white, big bread with British grains and chemicals were the latest thing to do that. So they developed a method that does that very well on mass, big, you know, mass production, no human hands need to be involved. And um, and it's basically created the $1 white slice loaf. And it's been, you know, supermarkets or the food industry has worked really hard to keep it at that price and it's not really nobody's making any money of that for for supermarkets that's a um a loss leader because that's what people come in for all the time so they accept that they're not making any money on that but it sets an expectation in the general population and it makes it very difficult for people that make bread like we do um, to compete with that and, and, and because people have that expectation that bread should be a staple, should be cheap because it's culturally been sort of promulgated like that for so long. Kia ora, my name's Duncan Grieve and I'm Managing Editor at The Spin-Off. This podcast, like so much of the work we do at The Spin-Off, is made possible by the support of our members. To find out more about The Spin-Off members and how you can help us keep producing quality, independent journalism, visit members.thespinoff.co.nz today. And that that white bread, you know, the really kind of, you know, um, <laughs> the really uh, the really white breads, uh, uh, the carbohydrates, they're basically the same as um, sugars that is too big to be tasted as as sweet. Uh, that's what I say. It, it, they have the same nutritional value as fizzy drinks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, and, and your it body should not be. You shouldn't be having it for breakfast, certainly. Yeah, your body, your body knows that. And sometimes, um, yeah, and 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 the waste is the other side of the equation. In that, um, people who have ever worked inside the supermarket industry or the baking industry in any way know how much of the bread that sits on those shelves ends up being at best turned into pig food or breadcrumbs, but at worst chucked into landfill. That's right. Yep. Bread's the most wasted food item in, in the Western world. Yep. It's absolutely bananas. Like the volumes, you, you know, some, somewhere between 30 and 40% of all bread produced ends up being sent to waste and so that dollar loaf <laughs> is not actually that is, cheap no no I mean it, it's remarkable how, how how the industry works absolutely mind-blowing and then and then so, so tell me about kind of your journey into the the business side of it into into the organic bakery first and then into setting up yourself yeah so my goal was to have good bread first and foremost and I knew I didn't or couldn't potentially couldn't do my job here in New Zealand and um, I didn't want to eat the bread that was available so I thought I'd just do my own bakery and I started that in 2010 very small I did all the pastry baking um, because I've actually loved baking cakes and biscuits and and all that since I was a little girl and um, but I've I never did the bread baking I did I have a friend in Berlin who owns a relatively large, by New Zealand standards, organic bakery. 
And um, I, before we came to New Zealand, I worked for him for about nine months. And um, so I learned some basics. And I also imported a baker from Germany. So he, he did all the bread baking. I did the pastry baking. And, yeah, that's how I started, um, very small. And we were only open Wednesday to Sunday. And over the course of two years, I sort of got, I guess, a little bit of a reputation for making good organic sourdough breads. And then in, I met who uh, a couple of guys who were to become my business partners, and we started Bread and Butter in 2013, early 2013 we opened. And um, the goal, or I always knew to be viable in New Zealand because of the low population density we had to do wholesale as well um, we wouldn't be able to just do it with one store in one place so we set up um, a bakery in Greylin next to Faro and um, it has a large bakery kitchen um, and we always um, supplied wholesale out of there so we supply the hospitality industry, uh, restaurants hotels, caterers um, and organic stores and yeah. yeah. And how's it been growing the business as you've went um, down having a cafe kind of side as well and you've had the wholesale and yep. you've had the bakery and, and how's it been building out those kind of um, three strands to a business with differing staff needs and supplier <laughs> needs and logistics. It sounds, because um, it's, a, you know, they're beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, spaces to be in. And um, that, yeah, it must be an enormous kind of um, amount of work to go into it. It is. <laughs> I, um, yeah, it is. It's very rewarding at times. And at times it's just feels like it's killing you. Um, hospitality is a very small margin industry um, so it's always a lot of work it's very reliant on people and um, it's very difficult in New Zealand to find skilled especially bakers bread bakers are virtually non-existent there's very few New Zealand bread bakers pastry chefs as well chefs which we need for the cafes um, so s staff is Probably, but in any industry, probably any business uh, person would say the hardest bit is staff. Um, and um, but it's also it's also been very rewarding because I've been able to meet so many interesting people, and there's so many passionate people in the industry. And I think that um, New Zealand has a particular role to play in the food industry. New Zealand is always perceived in the world as you know, niche, but also a bit of a outside leader. And, you know, everybody looks at New Zealand as this beautiful gem at the bottom of the Pacific. And everybody has a positive image about New Zealand. So I, and, and New Zealand has always been kind of a food producing country, first for the British Empire, but we still produce a lot of food. It's a huge part of our economy. And New Zealand has also I've always found it to be very nimble and open to change and open to other ideas. And, you know, when you come from Europe, 
everybody's very stuck in their ways and you know everything has hundreds of years of history so to change anything you always meet a lot of resistance and yes there's always going to be a resistance to change in New Zealand as well but generally people are a lot more open they're more okay let's give this a go if it works it works and if it doesn't we'll try something else so I think New Zealand has a huge opportunity to show to the world how we can grow food differently how we can grow food that actually nourishes people and we should start with our own people you know we have a huge challenge here with obesity and and other lifestyle related uh, food related diseases and I think if we could turn this around and grow food for our own people as a huge focus and not just grow exportable commodity foods but actually grow healthy foods and show this on a small scale, I think exporting that knowledge of how to do that would be a lot more beneficial than exporting a, a, co- commodity, a commodity milk, milk powder. powder. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like there's something that I find fascinating about so much of this. So your work with the bakery with, you know, slow fermentation and organic uh, ingredients and your work with Kelmana Gardens, if people aren't familiar with that, the beautiful organic gardens uh, in, in kind of Hoon Bay um, at West Mary there and then uh, in Hoon Bay there and then uh, also the work with the Greyland Farmers Market. These innovations are the oldest, most traditional ways of, of um, making and selling and having a connection to how food was grown and made and produced and the like. Um, yeah, t- t- tell me about that, that kind of like how the innovation is actually just in so many of these ways are going back to, to tried and true methods. Yes, well, I, I think, um, you know, going forward, we really need to find a way that combines old knowledge with new knowledge. Um, I, I don't believe that, you know, we should live in some kind of mid 20th century utopia, you know, just without all the technology. I don't think that's the future. I think we need to we need to understand nature better and uh, we need to find out um, what our ancestors knew about agriculture, about living within nature and with nature in, in harmony. Not that they always did that. Um, I'm, I'm fully aware that they didn't. But I think long term, as humans, we're part of life. We, we we stem from the same roots, you know. We're not something separate. So we need to live within that. We need to find out how to do that, not by exploiting, but by working in that natural system, which is always recycling resources. You can't – yes, you can grow and use up more resources, but on a finite planet, eventually – you know, and and we're pretty much reaching the limits of of the resource exploitation of this planet. So, I think learning from those old things like traditional agriculture, which is what Kalmana tries to do, they try try to use traditional organic principles, but then they also combine them with modern science, testing the soil, understanding biodiversity in the soil and which role that plays, and trying to find new ways of recycling waste. So at Kalmana, we have a composting hub where um, local businesses and families can bring their compost and it gets turned back into soil that then gets used to grow more food. Um, So trying to understand these cycles and bringing these things together and and then um, growing food as locally as possible. Food is often 
contains a lot of water, so it's heavy. So we should try and grow as much of this as possible where we can. And I think Auckland is – it's fantastic. I mean, it's a very spread out city um, and that has huge disadvantages, as everybody knows, who – you know, driving and, and getting around is painful. But it has also the advantage that we have a lot of green space. We could grow so much food. Maybe you don't have to grow potatoes and carrots because they can easily be transported, but everybody can grow spinach and salads and radishes and, you know, all of that, the, the, the difficult to transport stuff because it easily gets damaged. So it costs a lot to transport it because, you know, there has to be a lot of protection around it. But that, you, you could easily grow it yourself. And um, so I think um, these hubs like Kalmana, um can play a huge role in, in showing that to people and that's what we're trying to do there. It's got, you know, educational purposes to show people how to grow food. It's for kids to come and see where food gets grown. Um and um so that's yeah, that I think is, is very important. And then the other bit is the Grayland Farmers Market, which is a great community space and it brings people together and that's I think the other thing that um is possibly a little bit lacking in New Zealand because everybody just drives. Everybody lives in their own section without direct connection to their neighbours. You get into your car in your driveway and you drive somewhere so you don't know your neighbours. And I think for people, people can struggle with that. And traditionally, when you've lived in a small village, that's okay because you get to know everybody anyway. But people are quite mobile. They change where they live. And I think it makes people feel disconnected and Having, you know, having no no human connections is one of the big problems we have today. So I think, again, food and food communities play a huge role, and that's what we're trying to do at the Grayland Farmers Market. And again, by keeping food local and using local, locally grown foods, locally produced foods, you're also keeping the money circulating in the local economy rather than taking it to a supermarket which main owner is situated overseas and the money flows out of New Zealand. So Yeah, and it was so cool to see during COVID how you brought together so many of the elements of the Greyland Farmers Market and organic produce and the baking to be able to do kits to people's homes, um, you, you know, that were not the big corporate supermarket or food industry size um, re- response. Um, and, and, yeah, just, just as kind of like a... Um, a final thought, something we always, you know, love to ask people, like, yeah, what will what will success be for you personally? You know, you've built these beautiful businesses, you've got the new um, bakery, uh, the smaller pilot version starting in Whangaporoa, um, and yeah, what, what will success be for you personally with your mission around um, food and sustainability, and what will success be for bread and butter? I guess for me personally, I would just love to see people eating better bread as a, you know, just upping the standard of bread throughout the country. And that's what we're trying to do with the new small retail side of bread and butter. We're trying to get out into middle New Zealand, outside of the Grayland, Ponsonby um, areas where there's actually quite a lot of um, good bread available now from different producers. So trying to get to places where it may not be possible for people to get anything apart from the supermarket bread. Um, So I would love to see that being available widely throughout New Zealand. And it doesn't all have to be bread and butter. Um, I'm 
happy for lots of different bakeries in local areas to grow up. But I think for me personally, success would be if the percentage of supermarket bread as part of New Zealand's bread diet would dramatically drop and local bakeries and and real bread bakeries would come up everywhere that would I, I would I would be very happy about that but um, yeah for bread and butter we want to be part of that so we, we we would like to be able to bring that bread to more people in, in into wider areas of Auckland yeah oh, that's so cool thank you for sharing the story um, if people would like to find more they can uh, you've got that great blog bread politics which is so cool to follow your journey and your family's journey around a lot of these um, a lot of these challenges that you're facing uh, in, in uh, with um, yeah, with, with the communication and sharing your story around things like decarbonising your family, which is cool. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. That's Isabel Bash, founder uh, at Bread and Butter. Kia ora. Thank you very much for having me. Kia ora. Thank you very much for producing Tina Tiller, and thank you for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.